0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
1: Hello, welcome to The Rest is History, and uh, we would like to go over to Crawford, Texas, where we are joined by a special guest.
0: I'll answer the question. I looked the man in the eye. I
1: found him to be very straightforward and trustworthy. Uh, we had a very good dialogue. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. He's a man deeply committed to his country and the best interests of his country, uh, and I appreciated so very much the frank dialogue. There was no kind of diplomatic chit-chat, trying to throw each other off balance. There was uh, a straightforward dialogue, and that's the beginning of a very constructive relationship. Um, I wouldn't have invited him to my ranch if I didn't trust him. That was my brilliant impression of George W. Bush. It wasn't actually... No, that, was re- that really was George Bush.
0: That was, George, that was our first presidential guest.
1: Uh, and that was the occasion in 2001 of his first meeting with uh, President Vladimir Putin. In light of the current situation, um, we thought that it would be interesting to look at some of the historical context. We've already done an episode on the history of Ukraine, but we thought that it would be, you know, I mean, essentially everyone is asking, how did we get here? What is it that's yeah. prompted Putin to do what he's doing? um you know what what is the background what what is there an explanation for it that can be discovered in in history i suppose and in his specifically in his biography this is a field that you are much much more familiar with than i am
0: but i, I guess i lived through it so a lot of it yeah i think tom there's that apocryphal saying by napoleon isn't there that if you um know the world if, if you've studied the world when a man was 20 you you know how his mind works and um Vladimir Putin, like any Russian of his generation, he's born in 1952, has lived through the most colossal, almost unimaginable political, economic, kind of social changes in the former Soviet Union and, and Russia. And if we, and it's only by understanding what's happened to him and his country, I think that you can actually get get into his into his well attempt to get into his head and to understand why Russia is now as it is. So now it's becoming. You know, it appears to be becoming this pariah state, kind of shut off behind a new iron curtain of sanctions. How on earth has it got here? And that's what we're going to try and try and investigate. I mean, Dominic, you're, of course, it, it's been an absolutely convulsive period of change,
1: but there is also always the historians uh, question change or continuity. And you could say, I mean, people have been saying, that actually not that much has changed, that the Soviet Union was a, a, a political system Founded on lies, founded on a, a profound suspicion of the outside, uh, founded on an emphasis on military prowess over everything else. And you could say that Russia today is showing, you know, much the same.
0: Is the air of that. Yeah, I don't. That. Normally, I'm a great determinist in this podcast, but I don't think that's really true, actually. I think that misses. Um, you know, obviously Putin himself is a product of the Soviet system, which we'll go into in a second. But I think when you actually go through the period of change, you see that there were alternative paths that Russia could have taken, and and Russia isn't fated to be this sort of right, um, violent, you know, and nationalistic kind of hellhole that 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 so many people imagine. You know, what happened in the in the in the USSR in the nineteen eighties, and then in Russia in the nineteen nineties, there are all kinds of contingencies and twists and and so on. And there were alternative futures for Russia, as we will see. But
1: just just before we go uh, to to look at um, the last decade of the Soviet Union, you talked about the idea that, that Russia wasn't fated to become what it is now. But that idea of fate, the idea that Russia has a particular destiny, I mean, that is something that is very strong in Russian culture and actually
0: much older, of course, than communism. Yeah, the sort of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. Well, I mean, there are two different things on there, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. But the sort of the idea of Russia having this almost, as you would say, Tom, this almost kind of sacral destiny, you know, the the third Rome, um, the home of orthodoxy, kind of on the edge of Europe, half in Europe, half out. I mean, that is very deeply rooted in Russia's sense of itself, the sense of embattlement, um, a sense a, a distrust of the outside, but also a fascination with it. Um, so, yes, all those things are... Are, are there. But there is a sort of slightly stereotypical way we talk about Russia. So we always talk about... I mean, even George Bush did it there when he talked about knowing Putin's the soul. soul. Yes. The idea of the Russians having a soul that you must understand that is incredibly deep and dark. I mean, nobody says that about, you know... Um, uh, Belgium. Yeah, Belgium. <laughs> no, nobody says that about Belgium. Maybe Bart Van Leeu, our previous guest, would say but that. But also,
1: about. I mean, people, today, when you apply the word exceptionalism to countries, it's generally a pejorative. So people are very sniffy about the idea that there might be British exceptionalism or French exceptionalism, or American even though clearly, yeah. you know, I mean, they are all very exceptional countries. But in Russia, it seems to be something that yes. is pretty fundamental to the way that uh, not just Russian politicians, but large numbers of people within the country think of Russia. Would yes, you say that's fair. Or they're am I stereotyping? I think it, I think
0: it abso- No, I think it probably is fair. I think that's the way that a lot of Russians are, are told to think about themselves—that they have an exceptional, um, a unique past and a kind of exceptional destiny, and that uh, we do think of Russia typically as having an exceptional character. Outsiders do, and that's all that stuff about the Russian soul and about, yeah, you know, Russians are terribly kind of warm people, but they're but they're also that the price of human life is lower and all that sort of thing that you hear so often. Um, Yes, so I think there is a kind of exceptionalism, both projected from the outside but also believed inside.
1: I mean, it was expressed very unsettlingly by Putin, and I may be paraphrasing him here. And I, you know, this may be um, disinformation, but didn't he say something to the effect, talking with, with regard to nuclear weapons, that um, a, a world without Russia wouldn't be a, you know, why should the why should the world exist? If if, it exists without Russia. Russia.
0: Yes. And not only has he said that, by the way, but um, his kind of mouthpieces on Russian state television have used exactly the same line. So that's, yeah, a well-worn line, actually, in the sort of Putinist ideology.
1: Right. Okay. So a bit unsettling coming from people with the largest quantity of (laughs) nuclear (laughs) weapons weapons. on the face of the planet. But um, something that, as we said, can be traced back to the Tsarist period, but obviously gets a particular refinement under communism, where what had been the Russian Empire becomes the Soviet Union. And as the Soviet Union is one of two superpowers and sees itself charged with a, a historical destiny, it is the midwife of world communism. That has sustained it throughout decades of transformation and upheaval. By the 70s, when Putin is coming of age, that sense of purpose and of destiny perhaps is starting to fade. Uh, it's the age yeah. of Brezhnev, a man with kind of insanely huge eyebrows and, you and a kind of rigor mortis starts, <laughs> yes. isn't it? I mean, they're all kind of basically dead. They are constantly getting colds, but yeah. keep them in their beds for five years. Uh, they wear nothing but overcoats. They wear
0: things under the overcoats, Tom. Do and they? they don't... I've never seen any evidence for that.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, you're right. So it's Barnaby always snowing. So
0: what's going <laughs> so, on? So Putin is born in uh, Leningrad, St. Petersburg in 1952, and he's from a working-class family. His parents work in a factory. Um, and he goes to Leningrad State University in uh, 1970, I think, and he's there for five years. And so so he comes of age in the Brezhnev era, as you say, um, and it's an age of – it is it is not an age of revolutionary zeal at all. So you mentioned communism and, and, and um, a sort of sense of, of communist zeal, but that really isn't – what typifies the Brezhnev regime? The Brezhnev regime is all about stability and there's a kind of ordinariness to it. So for most people who are alive in the Soviet Union at that point, the Soviet Union is all they've ever known. Um, and everybody in the world, you know, in America and Britain, in Western Europe and in the Soviet Union, thinks the Soviet Union is going to probably be around forever. You know, it is, as you say, one of the two superpowers. Um, it's sclerotic. Uh, the economy... Is producing enough to keep people happy, so they're fed. They've actually got more consumer goods than ever before. Um, You know, Robert Service in his History of Russia says, uh, I think he uses the phrase, most Russian workers had never had it so good as they had it in the 1970s. So they've got fridges, they go on holiday there. You know, life's okay. But relatively, relatively, they've never had it. I mean, they've never
1: had it so good, but relative to the capitalist West. Of course,
0: it's falling Economically, they're starting to fall behind. and, And... the, the prosperity, the apparent prosperity of the seventies, is based on a fiction. So it's based on a sclerotic, com- incredibly complicated, top-down um, sort of system. You know, the sort of parodies of sort of state planning and tractor statistics and all that stuff—they're all they're all rooted in truth, but it's also rooted in high oil prices. So high world that they're, they're almost living a bit of a, a bit of an illusion, because when the oil price falls in the nineteen eighties, that's going to pull the rug out from the... From the system and Brezhnev, as you say, I mean he's not Stalin. You know, he's nothing like Stalin. He's not. It's still a very autocratic system. It's one that represses dissidents and shoves them into psychiatric hospitals, but it doesn't kill lots of people. Um, So life kind of you know goes on. And for a young man like Putin, his ambition is to join the KGB. Um, Supposedly he applies to join, and they say to him, "You don't apply." You know, we contact you, but they kind of make a note of him because they know that he's loyal and hard working and all this sort of stuff um so for him he thinks he's going to be he thinks he's joining the intelligence service of one of 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 the actually the world's great power because the 1970s is a terrible decade for the kind of the united states It's the decade of nixon and carter and vietnam and this sort of introspection and the soviet union there's a sort of sense that the soviet union might even be winning the cold war burying them burying them as yes as khrushchev said to said to nixon so there's this sort of false false image, I think, that people have about their own society in the 70s. And there are some people at the top of the Soviet regime, so in particular, the man who's going to succeed Brezhnev, who's a man called Yuri Andropov, who is the head of the KGB. There are some people who know that there are deep problems, that Russia has, you know, I say Russia, the Soviet Union has huge problems with alcoholism, with absenteeism, um, that its birth rate is, is struggling um that you know high rates of corruption all these kinds of things um but putin doesn't see this as a young man i wouldn't have said
1: well two questions first of all putin is he a committed communist as a young man or is he a committed nationalist
0: what's the balance there if you read sort of his semi-official biography it says that he reads you know he enjoys reading marxist leninist books when he's at he's at school i mean i think it's a bit like christianity tom is it? <laughs> you, it is in this oh. sense. In this sense, there's a difference between being a Christian in the second century AD and being a Christian in the 16th century when everybody's a Christian, and you know mm. you're not a radical, you're not a rebel, you're not necessarily. Well, you might be from, in the 16th century. Yeah, but you might not be. You might not. You might be a good Christian, but none of those things. You might yeah. just be an apparatchik. And um, I think he's a communist in the sense that he's listened to everything he's been told, and that provides his framework. But I don't think he's a. I don't think he burns with the zeal of social mm-hmm. justice or, or with revolutionary enthusiasm. Okay. I don't, I, actually, Tom, I don't think – I think a lot of the people who are running the show don't burn with revolutionary zeal. Okay, that was my other question. But uh, I think before I ask that,
1: let's take a quick break.
0: Support for this episode comes from the National Theatre. So Tom, we are talking once again about the National Theatre's very own streaming platform and it is called the National Theatre at Home. Yeah, it's a fantastic way to watch loads of
1: brilliant theatre from the comfort of your sofa at home.
0: There's no need to miss out just because a show has sold out or because you can't get a babysitter or because a trip to London is too far for one evening.
1: And this month, Dominic, they are launching the Olivier Award winning musical The Little Big Things, an extraordinary true story about an ordinary family. When one moment changes everything, Henry's family are split between a past
0: they no longer recognise and a future they could never foresee. It is based on the Sunday Times best-selling autobiography by Henry Fraser. It is a great new musical about the transformative power of family and how it is the little things that matter the most. Oh, Tom, it's so life-affirming, isn't
1: it? You can subscribe now for only £9.99 a month. And to find out more, visit ntathome.com. That's n-t-a-t-home.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked
0: things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest of History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt So much better now that I've got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But
1: if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you,
0: Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire, and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit
1: BetterHelp.com/slash/rest-is-history today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel slash rest is history
0: Welcome back to The Rest is History. So we're about 15 minutes in, and to be fair, we have barely scratched the surface. So what we're thinking of doing this week is having a slightly different release schedule from usual. We're going to release these episodes charting the fall of the Soviet Union, the chaos in Russia in the 1990s, and the rise of Vladimir Putin. We're going to release these over the next three days, so we're going to break them into slightly more digestible and accessible chunks because it's such a complicated and an important subject. Now, we will obviously return to our usual schedule next week, but we had such a big response to our Russia and Ukraine episode and so many requests for us to do this, these stories as well. We hope you understand. And I have to say, if you cannot wait for the rest of the story, if you literally cannot wait till tomorrow morning, and why would you be able to wait? Tom, there's another option
1: for people, isn't there? There is indeed, Dominic. Yes, you can join the Rest is History Club Um, And we appreciate that we've gained a lot of new listeners over the last couple of weeks. So um, let's just quickly explain how it works. So the Rest is History Club members get certain benefits like, as Dominic just said, early access to new episodes. Uh, You get ad-free listening. You get a bonus episode each week where Dominic and I review uh, your messages, review the episodes that we've done, feedback to that, all that kind of stuff. Um, We do live shows on YouTube once a month. So what have we done, Dominic? We've done the 60s, haven't we? We've done...
0: Assassinations. We did clubs, great clubs of history. All
1: all kinds of stuff like that. So stuff that you wouldn't otherwise get to hear. Uh, And also you get access to a chat room where, again, we discuss the episodes. We give out book recommendations, all kinds of stuff like that. And you can sign up for this, uh, the Rest is History Club at restishistorypod.com. That is restishistorypod.com. It's £6 a
0: month and you become a friend of the show. Now, just one tiny last bit of self-promotion for which I apologize. We do also have a gold level member tier and they're called the Athol stands, and they get all the friend of the show benefits. And if you join that, you get an invitation to two genuine, actual real parties, stand <laughs> parties every year. Dominic actually comes out of his hobbit hole. Oh, well, Amazing yes. sight. I, I mean, am I not going to just address the party on Zoom? I fear I'm not. <laughs> um, so, uh, Tom, we have the first date uh which i think is saturday the 21st of may um and of course i'm tremendously excited about that. yes
1: and it's in central london it's in a pub so that's yeah. very convenient for me less convenient
0: for you my argument to have uh, it at banbury station sadly was was vetoed <laughs> but the so whole you'll rest of history team will be there everybody <laughs> yeah. will be there all the lads um
1: yeah.
0: and we're going to be doing a pub quiz for the Athol Stands as well online and that is coming up this weekend on the sunday yes, the 13th it. and monday the 14th of March. So So we've got to get the questions together, all kinds of stuff like that. We do indeed. We do indeed. So that's restishistorypod.com if you want to join the club and you get all these tremendous benefits. And of course, crucially, you will get early access to the remainder of the episodes on this story, the fall of the USSR, um, the creation of Russia, the Russian Federation in the 1990s and the rise of Putin. And of course, if you don't want to join all that and you are absolutely bridling and furious at having the story's been interrupted by this shameless self-promotion, don't worry, you can carry on listening for free and we will get right back to it right now. Yeah, that is enough shameless self-promotion. Right, Dominic. So um,
1: you were just saying uh, before the break that um, a lot of the people at the top of the Soviet Union are not burning with kind of revolutionary communist zeal. And the question I asked you was on Andropov. He's the guy who, who notoriously has the cold. It lasts for what kind of four years, three years, or something? I mean, he's in. I mean, basically, he's incapacitated for the whole period of his term of as his, general of secretary. His, yes, and then he's succeeded by Chinenko, who is kind of in many ways even more moribund. Are yeah. these are these guys people who? Abs, you know, so Andropov is a very smart guy. He recognizes the Soviet Union has huge problems. Is he a believer though? He he doesn't question the system. He just thinks that the system needs a bit of tinkering, you know, apply the spanner here, a bit of oil there, and it
0: will tick along fine. Uh, he doesn't question the mission, I suppose, is what I would say. Um, so, I mean, Chernenko, he's a hack. He's just a party hack. Andropov is, is clever. He was the Soviet ambassador, I think, in um, Hungary during the Budapest uprising. So he, he has taken from that a belief that you have to be, you have to be strong. You know, you have to suppress dissent. You can't let things. But he also has taken the belief that um, you have to get in ahead. So, you know, you can't let yourself get in a situation where thousands of people are in the streets. You have to keep changing the system to make it yeah. work. Um, so I don't think Andropov is in He's very severe. He's very strict. He's very anti-corruption. Um, and he's clever. And he has read forbidden books. And he, as Soviets, sort of the, the top brass are allowed to do they're expected to do to inform themselves. And he's surrounded himself with aides who are relatively free thinking. But he's still, a, I mean, everybody there believes in them that their model must triumph. And they believe they're in a global competition with this with the United States. Absolutely. Yeah. And so he is, you know, said he was head of the KGB. He's general
1: secretary during the kind of the coldest days of the, of the Cold War in the early 80s. Yes. So he he is the guy who's in charge when Reagan is lambasting the Soviet Union as evil the Emperor, empire. Yeah. And
0: it's 99 red balloons and two tribes. Which is very frightening, kind of by the way, for the Soviet leadership. They they think the Americans are going to attack them. Well, I mean, we did a podcast about this with Taylor Downing um, about nuclear war. They absolutely are terrified that the Americans are going to attack them first. Um, but yeah, so Andropov takes over. Brezhnev dies. I mean, Brezhnev basically died multiple times uh, and was literally brought back from the dead. Um, you know, he's sort of resuscitated and dragged around as this sort of embalmed figure mm-hmm. in the late 1970s. Andropov succeeds in November 82 and is there till February 84. And as you said, he's basically ill the whole time. I mean, they literally, you know, the, on one side of his bed, there'll be the man with the nuclear briefcase. and The other side of his bed will be the nurse who's keeping him alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he dies. Now, the person he wants to succeed him is the crucial figure in this podcast. And for Putin, a figure of of utter ignominy and shame in Russian history, as indeed he is for a lot of Russians. And that man is Mikhail Gorbachev. That's the man that Andropov wants to take over. But he doesn't. He's too young. So the other people in the Politburo, they, they bypass him and they get this old hack, Chanenko, who is another sort of... I mean, he's dying when he takes over. And he's there from February 84 to the spring of 85. So what was it about Gorbachev that Andropov had seen? That's a, that's a, that's a really good question. So Gorbachev is a generation younger. He's the youngest guy, I think, pretty much on the uh, Politburo. He joins in 1980 and he's 49, which is incredibly young by the standards of the Soviet leadership. And he has a glamorous wife. He does, right. He's a, a very clever wife who's a very important, I mean, hugely important figure for him. His chief advisor. I mean, his real uh, his real soulmate. Um, so Gorbachev is from a place called Stavropol. He's from a little village called, what's it called? Privolnoye, I think it's called. Um and he's from peasant stock. He's bright. He's, he's super bright. He's gone to Moscow State University. And I think he's read law. He's got uh, a birthmark on his uh, on forehead. His head. He does very important. He's but, traveled. So he's been abroad. He even went on a three-week driving holiday in France with Raisa, And they sort of did. drove around France Didn't and, said, and said, um, God, you know, this place is so much better than the <laughs> Soviet Union. You know, this is the sort of classic thing that often happens when people are posted to the West. Um, he actually, one of his chief aides, one of his chief advisors, is a man called Alexander Yakovlev, who had been ambassador to Canada, and and basically had exactly the same kind of yeah. crisis of confidence. You know, he got to Canada and was like, oh my god, this base is great. Um, but when uh, Gorbachev becomes general secretary,
1: yeah, he, he's still a believer. I mean, he, just because he's he's got nice camembert in France, it doesn't right. mean that he's absolutely, he thinks- Tom,
0: absolutely, he's a believer. He is he is idealistic, and this is one of the great problems with Gorbachev. Now, Gorbachev is a fascinating character because, of course, everybody listening to this by and large, will think, oh Gorby, nice guy, you know, Nobel Peace Prize winner, top man. Of course, in Russia, he is regarded with absolute contempt. And I have to say, when you when you start to dig into the story and you think about Gorbachev in a in a slightly more detached way, I mean we've done a lot of weak and failed leaders on this podcast. And although it pains me to say it because he's an admirable man in so many ways. I mean, but when he leaves office, he's only in there for six years. And when he leaves, his his country has completely and utterly fallen apart. Now, some people would say that's because the problems are too great. But I think Gorbachev, I think almost all historians, actually, who really work on this, people like uh, Robert Service or Vladislav Zubok, who wrote a brilliant book called Collapse um, that came out last year, The Fall of the Soviet Union, they would just say Gorbachev is a complete and utter disaster. Why? He's idealistic, Tom. He's... He's bright. He and Raisa have have spent loads of time talking about the future of the Soviet Union. They like talking to other kind of intellectually kind of people. Um, Gorbachev is also very canny. um, So he's been able to get up the kind of greasy pole. He's um, powerful patrons like Andropov think a lot of him. He says to Raisa when he joins the I think it's when he joined the Politburo. He said, we can't live like this any longer. And he's determined to fix the system, but he goes about fixing it in such a politically incompetent. I mean, it, I, again, it slightly pains me to say it, um, but he, he fixes it in such an inept way that absolutely everything gets worse. He does too much too quickly, too many different areas and, and everything falls apart. And you said, what well, is he a believer? He's absolutely a believer. So uh, Vladislav Zubot brings this out really well in his book. He says, you know, Gorbachev is obsessed with Lenin. I mean this is so much like that your parallel with your christianity stuff about people who you know people who would kind of Oliver Cromwell or somebody reading the bible to guide mm-hmm. them. Gorbachev has Lenin's sort of works on his desk and he will sort of dip into them in the way that people sometimes dip into the bible. He will dip into them to try and get inspiration for what he needs to do and he becomes convinced he is convinced that the Soviet Union has taken a wrong turn since the 1920s, and it needs to get back to Lenin's vision. He idealizes Lenin, and he thinks Lenin had a vision uh, it's a more democratic, free, open, creative. And if I can get back to that, we'll establish true communism, and, and then we'll turn this sort of sinking ship around. If you can turn a sinking ship around, it's a so rapport. that's that's quite a kind
1: of abstract sense of mission. But I maybe I've got this wrong, but I thought that he was also focused on a very specific problem which was that uh, the soviet economy was massively distorted by defense spending so yeah. they they're spending what 20 25% no
0: it's probably not to, that's actually been exaggerated it's about 15% i think is the but latest still estimate
1: quite a lot it is and but it's if he's going to if they're going to you know guns to butter yeah then they need to Make things up with the West, so he does that very effectively. I mean, he's very good at that. Yes, he 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 definitely kind of removes the chill from the Cold War very effectively. So, which is why people in the West, you know, rate him so highly. But as someone who is ideologically committed to Marxist Leninism, I mean, isn't it a a definition of the job that kind of trying to construct an economy that will provide Soviet citizens with all the kind of consumer durables and gizmos that you get in the West is bound to fail. I mean, there's
0: just no way it can be done. No, I don't agree with that. I I actually don't agree with either of those things. So first of all, the defense spending, um, that has become a very comforting myth that the West tells itself about the Soviet Union, particularly in America, that we crippled, we won the Cold War by increasing defense spending so much that they couldn't keep up. But most historians, I think, would now say they could keep up. I mean, they have done done defense it. spending. Yeah, they've done it since the forties. They could, they could have carried on doing it. I mean, that defense spending is not what brings the Soviet Union down. Second point, I forgot what your second point was, Tom. Um, oh, consumer durables. Well, there is a very good example of a communist country that has, you know, embraced a consumer economy. China. And that's China, and the Chinese. I mean, Deng Xiaoping supposedly said something to the effect that he, somebody, his son, asked him what he thought of Gorbachev, and he said, "I think Gorbachev's a complete idiot." Um, yes, but and, this is communism with Chinese characteristics,
1: which basically means a kind of freedom to ignore aspects of communism that don't gel with, with making money. But but Leninism absolutely did. I mean, Leninism was all about kind of collectivization. but Tom, I think most suppression
0: his, of private enterprise. But I think most historians would say, well, first of all, that's not what Gorbachev himself thinks. He thinks Lenin's new economic policy in the 1920s after the Russian Civil War did allow some space for limited private enterprise and that they can move towards a mixed economy. Um, I think one of the big problems with the Soviet Union is it's become so reliant on imports paid for with oil revenue and it's completely failed to develop its own kind of consumer industries. So it's like Saudi Arabia with snow, (laughs) a bit. (laughs) Is that what the Saudi, what do they do? Do they spend their raw money on snow?
1: (laughs) No, but I mean, it's the Saudi, you know, it's notoriously um, economies that
0: have lots of oil tend to be dysfunctional. Well, yes, Iran is a good example. from the 70s, we talked about Iran a lot in previous podcasts. Um, And I think, yes, it's incredibly dysfunctional. I mean, it's an unbelievably complicated economy. Uh, No one, I mean, when Gorbachev is given, they're, they're talking about this thing called the law of state enterprise, which is going to be this law that's going to allow a little bit of more freedom for factories to keep their money and to invest it and those sort of thing. Gorbachev says at one point, you know, I basically don't understand this. And and nobody really (laughs) Well, well, I I, I feel sympathy. I mean, basically, he's trying to to mend a a machine for which there is no instruction manual. I think there's a a degree of that. Um, But I think he's also, you see, the thing is, he's trying to mend this machine, which has incredibly complicated kind of supply chain networks and, and it has this weird cashless system that enterprises use with each other, whereas citizens use cash and you can't change one to the other. I mean, it's completely mad, but that's the way. It's a bit like... Any massive sclerotic institution, once you start to fiddle with it, it becomes very difficult to stop it from falling apart. But the other thing is he combines this with a – so he has the perestroika, which is restructuring, which kind mm-hmm. of has political and economic developments. But he combines it with glasnost, which is openness. openness. Yes. And that's in the wake of Chernobyl. So Chernobyl – the explosion at Chernobyl is in April 1986. And after that, Gorbachev thinks, well, I need to, I need to increase the speed. We need to have more newspapers. We need to have more discussion. And why is it? Why, why does Chernobyl have that effect on him? Because I think he's he's shocked by the incompetence, um, by the cover-ups, by the ineptitude of the managers, by the way the atomic industry has been run, by their lies, all of that kind of stuff. You know, Gorbachev, of course, he's complicit in covering it up a bit because he's the general secretary and he kind of ha- feels like he has to, but he still thinks okay, we need to, you know, we just need to be more open and we need to be more creative. Crucially, one of the things he does now, one of the things we haven't talked about at all, which is very important for understanding Putin, is the Soviet Union, and I know we have a lot of very, kind of, to to us, young listeners, the Soviet Union is not anything like a nation state, and it doesn't even really see itself as an empire. So it's got 15 republics um, going all the way from Estonia. I mean, it's a mad state in many ways it's existed you know one form or another since the 20s but it's got going all the way from Estonia to kind of Tajikistan and the Russians are about roughly about 50 percent of that you know the Russian population and there's always been the issue of nationalism you know there's always been tensions in the Caucasus in Central Asia in the Baltics and so on and Gorbachev has this idea that by basically devolving a lot of power to the republics i mean devolution tom what could possibly go wrong mm-hmm. um devolving power to the republics uh that will invigorate the system you know but at the same time he wants to open everything up so people can debate things more freely so that will obviously give nationalism more room to sort of to flourish yeah. but he also look, combines that with an attack on what he sees as the corruption of the old elites so the old elites are embattled people are talking about new ideas but they're also being given more power. The, the whole thing, it's a sort of, he, he creates unwittingly a kind of breeding ground for all these kind of nationalistic movements to thrive. And you see it as early as 1986. You see it in Kazakhstan and in the Baltics and in Ukraine, movements calling for new language rights and, you know, opposing power stations and all these kinds of things. So the seeds of trouble are there even after he's only been there a year. And Dominic, do we know what Putin is doing?
1: Yes, we time. do. So this is in Saint Petersburg, still. Is no,
0: no, this is the interesting thing. He's not. So around about the point where uh, Chernenko gave way to Gorbachev, and Gorbachev came into power, Vladimir Putin has has been he's been working for the KGB since the late seventies, and he has now been posted to Dresden, the East Germany. Oh, of course, he has. Yes, of course. So what he's doing, and yes. he's doing sort of slightly. It seems there are different stories. Some people say he's just compiling information about dissidents. Some people say actually he's trying to sort of. Forge links with the sort of remnants of the Red Army faction, the Bader Meinhof gang in West Germany. We don't know because, of course, it's secret. But what we know is he's watching all this from outside. So he has left a state that he thinks is powerful, you know, strong, respected in the world, high status. And he sees this guy ref- trying to reform it, to change things. And that's really important, I think, that Putin is watching it from outside and f- he's watching it, frankly, with horror.
1: And he's in East Germany, which has a higher standard of living relative to the Soviet Union. It does indeed, So he is alert to, presumably, some of the problems that the Soviet economy faces.
0: Yes. I I don't think – you asked if Putin was a communist. Um, He's certainly not a communist now and has not been since the fall of the USSR. But what he is, is a believer in the Russian world in the russian sphere of influence and i think that's what's going to trouble him as we get into the late 80s and early 90s that that starts to fragment and fall apart
1: well i think that's enough for today so that's the end of today's episode uh please join us tomorrow to hear about when things really start imploding for gorbachev in the late 80s and in due course for the soviet union itself we will see you tomorrow